Good morning, Sox fans. It is White Sox Weekly on the ESPN 1000 Hard Rock Casino, White Sox Network. Shane Orling sitting in White Sox Weekly today, taking you up to White Sox Baseball. The pregame show will start at 1230 ahead of a 110 first pitch on the south side against the St. Louis Cardinals. The Sox picked up a win last night. They needed it badly. An 8-7 victory over the St. Louis Cardinals in what has been an otherwise Rough week for the Chicago White Sox. They dropped that weekend series to the Oakland A's, losing two of three, and then lost three straight at home to the Blue Jays. A 4-3 loss, a 6-2 loss, and a 5-4 loss. The final two coming in a doubleheader before picking up that win over St. Louis last night. Uh, Sox fans, join us tomorrow for Faith and Family Day, presented by He Gets Us, as the White Sox take on the St. Louis Cardinals at 1.10 p.m. to purchase tickets. Visit WhiteSox.com slash promos. That is tomorrow at the rate. So the White Sox, a lot of the conversation uh, so far this season and really this summer as we've gotten deeper into these months, June, July, now sitting here, July 8th, and you take a look at the standings and the American League Central, which has really been in reach all season despite the disappointing record for the Sox, now at 38-52. and We're getting to a point where we just have to be a little honest about the prospects of this division. At seven and a half out on July 8th, it's probably okay to say with the deadline approaching, we're we're going to have to take a, a realistic stock of where we are and probably sell. Now, I know, Sox fans, you hear that. And we think about how this window was wide open and how everybody was ready to go. This team is going to contend. And now here we are talking about a potential sell-off July 8th, 2023. And I understand that as a baseball fan, as a Chicago White Sox fan, this would be painful for you to hear. Nobody wanted to be here. The season started and we were all very hopeful you could contend for a division, you could contend for an American League Central title. The reality now is that's not likely and we're in a position where there are valuable players on this team. There are players who would be viewed as upgrades and assets for teams who are true contenders. And one of those guys is Lucas Giolito, who is having a bounce back season. And it's one of those that we all talked about. He had the potential to have. He could get there. He'd been so good 2019, that all-star season when he posted uh, the best season of his career. And he's kind of back to that level. He's pitching at a level where he was then. 2019, a 3-4 ERA in 29 starts. 2020, the shortened pandemic season, a 3-4-8 ERA. 2021, a 3-5-3 ERA. Last year, the wheels came off the wagon a little bit. The ERA close to five. Lucas struggled getting outs. Lucas struggled getting strikeouts. He had a harder time doing the things he had done so well. The strikeouts per nine dropping by almost two from two seasons before. And the strikeouts haven't come back, but he's learned a little bit of how to pitch better. His mix is getting better, and he's bounced back to a point of 18 starts this season and a 3.5 ERA. It's his best ERA since the pandemic-shortened season. So in reality, it's his best ERA since 2019 when he was an All-Star. And you could make an argument in the American League where starting pitching has been so light 
Lucas could have been an all-star this season. I'll get to that a little bit uh, more involved in the 11 o'clock hour. What I want to stick with right now, though, is me talking about selling Lucas Giolito, me talking about potentially selling Lance Lynn or some of the other valuable assets that could help a contender that you have on this team, some of those rental pieces. We've heard Rick Hahn talk about this won't be full scale. They're not going to send, you know, Luis Robert out. They're not going to send Dylan Cease out. They're going to retain a lot of those core pieces and send out some of the guys who are on deals that are up at the end of this season or that are up soon and they'll get back prospects and try to retool along the way and get back to being better next year. I have an example from Major League Baseball, not local, that can tell you how selling this season and sending out somebody like Lucas Giolito is not a long-term death sentence. Last season, the Cincinnati Reds were in a full-on sale. Tyler Molly at the trade deadline, pitcher for the Cincinnati Reds, was 5-7 and seven with a 4.4 ERA in 19 starts. Lucas Giolito, in his 18 starts this year, is well ahead of that pace. 3-5 ERA, a better name brand. Tyler Molly, not a huge name. Giolito, more recognizable. He's got the no-hitter. He's been an all-star. He's having a better season than Molly was a year ago. What did the Reds get back for a guy like Tyler Molly? Well, they got back three prospects from the Minnesota Twins, two you've probably never heard of, Christian Encarnacion Strand and Stephen Hajar. The highest-rated prospect from the Twins system that the Reds were able to get, Spencer Steer, the seventh prospect in the Twins system, came up to the big leagues this season, and all he might do is win the National League Rookie of the Year. On a team that has used him as an engine... For the vast majority of this season, until they got an opportunity to call up Ellie De La Cruz, and since that call up, they're twenty-one and six, and they have a lead in the National League Central. They are incredible. They're probably the most exciting story in baseball. They're probably the most fun watch in baseball right now, and a big part of that is last offseason or last season. At the deadline, when things looked really, really sour in Cincinnati, and when they had to make a difficult decision to sell Tyler Molly and to go back into this rebuild mode and get prospects, guys who didn't crack the top seven of a system from Minnesota, and they get back a guy who might win the National League Rookie of the Year, and one year later we're talking about a team that's having their best season in a decade and could win their division, the National League Central, running away if they can keep half of the pace that they've put up since the Ellie De La Cruz call-up. The point I'm making to you is this. The White Sox are very likely about to embark on what will be a painful journey. The White Sox are likely to head into the remainder of this season selling off a lot of the pieces that we all knew as core pieces in what was supposed to be a contention window. And the reality is that didn't happen. But if you can make the right deal and you have a guy in Giolito who has performed miles better than Tyler Molly did a year ago when he netted Cincinnati Spencer Steer, you might not know the names of the players that you get back for Lucas Giolito. Lord knows I'm not even going to get in the business of projecting who those players might be. It is 
it's harder than playing poker. It is a game of chance. You are rolling dice if you want to sit here and talk about what prospects you're going to get back for Giolito. But know this. If Tyler Molly couldn't get you inside the top seven, Giolito will. You will probably get two, maybe three prospects, and one of them will be in the top five of the system for whatever team you trade to. And the way these guys are being fast-tracked now, I told you about Spencer Steer, a prospect a year ago in Minnesota's system, now up to win National League Rookie of the Year. You go get a guy who's a year away from being major league ready, and you're talking about this White Sox team next season, I'm not telling you they'll be the Cincinnati Reds. I'm not telling you you're going to find Ellie De La Cruz and bring him up and, and have some prophesied season where you just go crazy hot, better than anyone could have possibly expected, and you are a contending team out of nowhere in this American League. I'm not telling you that. But what I would say is this. When we hear that, yeah, this AL Central, a generationally bad division, we're probably at a point where it's out of reach, and when we take a realistic stock of what we have, we're going to have to probably trade guys like Lucas Giolito, like Lance Lynn. We're probably going to have to make difficult decisions with some of the other core pieces that we have. It's going to hurt, and the rest of this season, it might hurt. You might look at a baseball team that loses a lot of games, but you might end up also getting back pieces that build something quicker than what we're talking about, where you open a contention window sooner than expected, and maybe next year you become that Cincinnati Reds. You become that Arizona Diamondbacks, where you had to have a little bit of pain, but it opens things up and you welcome in new young guys who could contend for rookies of the year, who could create a contender from your ball club. So I want to get Jesse Rogers' take on this. We will talk to him with the trade deadline pending. He's in Seattle. I also want to ask him some stuff about the all-star festivities that are coming up uh, next week. We'll do all of that next. It's White Sox Weekly, ESPN 1000, Hard Rock Casino, White Sox Network. Welcome back to White Sox Weekly on the Hard Rock Casino ESPN 1000 White Sox Network. Jesse Rogers joining me now talking about the White Sox. And Jess, I I, I hate to start here, but it kind of feels like it's where we have to start. And when you take a look at the standings in the American League Central, for the first time all year, it kind of does feel like the White Sox are well and truly out of it. And the question I think most people are asking is there anybody on this team that's untouchable? Like Luis Robert and Dylan Cease are the names that stick out. But even them, is there anyone that's untouchable as we approach the trade deadline? Well, I don't think there's any doubt Robert is untouchable. The contract is a, is a decent one for the team. And he's finally sort of playing to his abilities, his talents. There's still more room to grow. He's only 25 years old. I mean, if you trade Luis Robert, you are really blowing up this team and starting over. And why would you do that, right? Um, as soon as you trade him, you're trying to find the next Luis Robert. It's not like he's 30 years old. That That's the difference. The age and the contract make him untouchable. Um, I, I would say probably nobody else on the team, technically. I mean, Dylan Cease um, has Scott Boris as his agent. The clock is running on him. You just you, you listen on everyone when you have an underachieving season like that. I just don't think you'd give up on Luis Robert. It just wouldn't make sense even if you get a bunch of prospects back but I would think just about anybody else is available as you go through the roster 
remember they have a lot of sort of DH first baseman types, a lot of similar players. So um, they have redundancy there. You, you you can move a Gavin Sheets. You can move Aloy if, if a deal comes your way. I'm not saying these, these are all going to happen, but we know a few are going to happen, and certainly Lucas Giolito is the top of that list. But the guys that are under contract or have service time, I think they're all available. I just don't see a lot of them being moved. Where does Lance Lynn fit on that list? You talk about all the guys we know are going to be available. Lance was really off to a terrible start at the beginning of the year, April, May, but recently has found it a little bit, and it was great against the Mariners the other day. 11 uh, strikeouts, just one hit over seven innings of work. He had the 16-strikeout game in Seattle. Is he pitching his way into being someone who's going to find their way to a contender? Yeah, the short answer is yes. Now, it could be a contender on the edges. I'll go back to the St. Louis Cardinals a couple of years ago. They were kind of um, out of it. They were on the edges, and they traded for John Lester, who was not having a great year, and J.A. Happ, who wasn't having a great year, Shea. And then they went on a 17-game winning streak in September. So I'm not sure it's the Dodgers necessarily. Or maybe Actually, I, I should take that back. I, I, I don't know if it's like the best teams in the league that would be interested in Lance Lynn because right now the Dodgers are not one of the best teams, and they've had some pitching injuries, so I'm not going to rule them out. But it's almost like a team that's just still trying to you know, stay in the race and, and want someone on the back end. Uh, the swing and miss is telling. There's no doubt. The swing and miss is telling. He, ha- he still has it in him. I just don't think a contender is going to plug him into – you know, a one or a two spot. It's really back end depth. Um, if he pitches better than that, then you're happy with it. So it's it's like a team that needs pitching that's on the edges that simply doesn't want to give up a lot because it's not gonna, you're not going to get a lot back for Lance Lynn right now. And so that's the sort of team. Maybe the Reds, for all I know. You know, that's a great example. They're in it, but they don't have much pitching at all. So yeah. any upgrade would be an upgrade, and, and Lance Lynn would qualify. I just don't think the best teams in the league are looking for a Lance Lynn. What's the return look like realistically on somebody like Giolito or Lynn at this point who's, you know, not an ace front-end pitcher but kind of just an arm that bolsters a thin rotation? What what do you realistically get back for selling that? Yeah, I mean, Giolito, you get back more. Uh, he's younger. He's having a better year. Um, you get back one to two good prospects. That That's the bottom line. That's what you get back. That's the going rate for a guy that is up in two months, that's having a decent year, that isn't the elite of the elite, you get back one or two good prospects. And when I say good, it, you know, a team's top ten, not necessarily number one, but maybe a three and an eight or could, something. Yeah, I was or just going to ask, could you yeah. crack into the top five? Yeah, yeah. You could, if, if it's just a single player, um, yeah, maybe a, uh, your top four prospect. I, I hope it would be a double-A or triple-A pitcher that is very close to making it to the majors. Um, if you're trading Lucas Giolito, you need to revamp that starting staff in very short order here. You need some more arms. You need some more depth. You need high end. You need back end. So I imagine whatever trades the, the White Sox make, uh, th- that would be for pitching. It'd be for young pitching. So, yeah, a Giolito one for one, maybe a top a team's top five. If you get two guys back, maybe two from five to ten, something like that. Um, and, and certainly the last few starts before – the deadline are important. You know, teams look at the, 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 the what, what are you doing for me lately sort of thing. So that's why Lance Lynn's April doesn't really matter. And, you know, whatever you're getting for Giolito back, it's, it's one level down for, for Lance Lynn. You're getting maybe a prospect between 10 and 20 from a team for Lance Lynn. 
Um, and remember, just because it's 10 and 20 on paper doesn't mean he can't be a star, right? You're just trying to find inventory to bolster your farm system and hope something hits in the next year or two. Last thing, and then I want to talk to you about some of the all-star festivities since you're in Seattle, is does it feel like it's a little harder to get good prospects back for middle rotation arms because so many more teams are motivated to buy with the balanced schedule and the expanded playoffs? Like More teams feel like they're in it later in the year and are more motivated to be buyers. Is it, does that make it harder to actually get assets back for an arm like Giolito, or is it a little easier? Yeah, there's differing opinions on that. It, it's a good question, Shay, because... Less sellers mean those sellers probably will get more out of it, right? And there, and I do think there's at least a lot of teams that are going to stand pat or buy a little bit. The divisions are so wacky. I mean, the Blue Jays are, what, 48, 40, something like that, and, and they're in fourth place, eight games out of first, but they have a wild card shot. You go to the AL and NL Centrals, there's some mediocre teams, but they have playoff chances. Um, so I, I do think it's a bit of a seller's market. So I, I still think you can get something decent back. Uh, I, I look at last year, um, the Cubs got a, a, a nice guy, uh, Ben Brown, a good prospect for their closer, David Robertson. And David Robertson wasn't exactly Mariano Rivera. So I'm going to say that, look, if you have a good pitcher, especially a pitcher, or maybe a left-handed bat, you can get something back. You can get something decent. You're not going to get a Hall of Five guys. Maybe for Otani you would, but but you're going to get one or two good prospects back. Um, so I would still say uh, it's a seller's market, partly because of what you said. And if it's a seller's market, that means the return should be decent. All right, I want to ask about some of the All-Star festivities. Uh, Luis Robert Jr., the lone representative for the White Sox in the All-Star game and the Home Run Derby, he's participating in this home run derby he's actually the one seed in the derby and he's with pete alonzo mookie betts adelise garcia adley rutschman julio rodriguez vladdy jr and randy Arozarena. jess am i wrong or is this one of the better fields we've seen recently with kind of a lot of star power here well it's got great star power it's evenly matched i mean it, it's not all the sluggers i mean otani's not there of course yeah and there's a few guys like Betts. i don't view as a natural home run hitter right he hits homers but he's not the he's not schwarber right there's no schwarber there's no otani bit like but, jose but I, ramirez last year who was yeah, exactly exactly so i think it's evenly matched but does lack the best of the best home run hitters i think this is why luis robert is the one seed he has 25 and those other guys aren't in it and i actually like robert's chances um he doesn't miss mistakes down the middle of the plate and that's all you get in, with a batting practice pitcher. So I, I think he's he, he, I think he's got a shot. I really do. Now, Pete Alonso, I assume, is the favorite. I haven't looked at the odds, but betting odds. But, I mean, this guy's won it a couple times. He's a monster. He's the polar bear for a reason. So I think he'd be the favorite. But I, would, I wouldn't – if you're a betting man, I, 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 I like Luis Roberts' chances. Um, he says he's not going to change his swing. They all say that, but you end up doing it a little bit. And I just think that the guy – doesn't miss pitches in the regular season at 99. I don't think he's going to miss many at 85 or whatever, yeah. 70, whatever it's going to be. And uh, he'll hit it out, you know. He'll hit a bunch out. So I, I like his chances at least to to go deep into that. And, of course, he's not going to even see 85. He's going to see 60 or whatever it is. And he'll he'll uh, he'll get his share of home runs. Luis Robert actually third best odds. Pete Alonso three to one is the favorite. Vladdy yeah. Junior uh, plus three sixty right around there, depending where you look. And then Luis Robert, you can get five to one. Maybe the White Sox actually get a win here in the home run derby. 
Well, let me just say this. And, and the other thing is, I know you know this, Shay, having done pre and post and watching them. Like, he's so effortless, too. Yeah. He feels like the type that won't get tired. Like, Vlad's a bigger guy and takes that big swing. feel like he could tire out because tiring out is, is as big a challenge as anything else. And I think Alonzo is kind of perfected at having the experience. That's why he's the favorite. But um, I, I like Luis over Vlad. I really do. Luis swing. It, it is getting to that point, and he got the comparison early in his career to Mike Trout. It is getting to the point when you watch him where it feels like his swing is the same every time, and it just creates home runs, and he's not swinging out of his shoes ever. I I, yeah. I agree with you. I think he has a really good chance in this event. Uh, Jess, all-star in Seattle. How does it stack up to some of the other all-star cities you've been to? Yeah, it, it's a good city because um, it's not the biggest city, but it is a you know obviously a a, a big market. Uh, my point being, sometimes in a big city, things are things get really spread out. So it's just big enough to host it, but it's not too big that things are spread out. Beautiful, beautiful ballpark. Looking forward to you know sort of the home run derby with the with, with there because I I don't I haven't been here too often a couple times, and I'm interested to see how the ball travels when everyone's just trying to hit home runs. So I think it's a real good city to to host a home run derby. I'm actually staying up here after the uh, after the All Star game to to take a little vacation. That's I mean, good for you. Pacific, yeah, it's the Pacific Northwest, Shay. How how can you go wrong? So I think it. You know, I just got here. I, I think it'll stack up to be a, a really good city for those reasons. Um, and you know what? I, I think the game will be interesting. It always is. is, is some storyline or some moment will happen, and, and that's that'll be the buzz the next day. Even though. It's not as competitive as the old days, but you count, you combine all star, uh, you combine home run derby with the all star game, and it's a it's a fun couple of days to be up here. And tonight I'll be going to the futures game. There's a White Sox player in that. Tomorrow the draft is held here. They've they've combined the draft with all star uh, festivities uh, the last couple of years. That's going to be something now permanent. So it's it's a fun weekend to be in the all-star city because so much is going on. I liked how you said it doesn't get too spread out in Seattle. I can tell you were in Los Angeles last year. Right, exactly right. That's exactly <laughs> Jess, right. Thank you as always for coming on. Uh, always appreciated. Enjoy the festivities. You got it, Shay. Be well. It's White Sox Weekly. Shane Orling in for Connor McKnight on the ESPN 1000 Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network. It's White Sox Weekly. Shane Orling here. On the ESPN 1000 Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network, a good conversation with Jesse Rogers. He's out in Seattle for the All-Star Game. And Sox fans, remember, you can join us tomorrow for Family Sundays presented by Coca-Cola at Guaranteed Rate Field. Bring your family out to the ballpark for a day full of fun. Tickets start at just $10. Visit WhiteSox.com slash Sunday to purchase your tickets today. Uh, Jesse talking about being out in Seattle, Luis Robert in this all-star game and in this home run derby and the home run derby is more of where I want to focus. Uh, Luis Robert, the favorite. And I think the question, well, not the favorite, but the one seed, the question is, should he be the favorite? Three, one, two, three, three, two, three, seven, seven, six. If you want to weigh in on this. There is a question about whether or not Luis Robert, who has the most home runs of anyone in the field and is the number one seed in the home run derby, should he be the favorite? The two guys in front of him uh, in the odds, we will get to in a moment. Let's pause 10 seconds for station identification. The two guys in front of Luis Robert in the odds to win the home run derby. It is honestly kind of a loaded field. There's been a little bit of a discussion 
uh, about whether or not this event has as loaded a field as you would hope. And it doesn't have Shohei Otani. It doesn't, you know, there are some of the big-time sluggers that are missing. But I think when you compare it to other all-star events in sports, like the NBA dunk contest, where last year uh, there was a G-leaguer in the NBA dunk contest, literally a G-leaguer. There were guys nobody had ever heard of in that event. And in this event, in the Home Run Derby, I think at least you are getting guys you've heard of. You've got Pete Alonso, somebody who has won this event. You've got Vladimir Guerrero Jr., one of the legacy stars in this league. You, of course, have the local hero, Luis Robert Jr., Julio Rodriguez, a guy who was an all-star a year ago, won Rookie of the Year, was an MVP contender, had a phenomenal season. He's done things that nobody except for Fernando Tatis Jr. has done in the history of baseball. He's in this event. Adelis Garcia is a name that might not be instantly recognizable, but he is a slugger for the Texas Rangers. Randy Arozarena, a guy who has been around since a big rookie debut when the Rays went to the World Series in the pandemic season, and Arozarena had an incredible postseason. Mookie Betts, a former MVP, and Adley Rutschman, one of the most touted prospects we have ever seen, who finally has come up and been a stud for the Baltimore Orioles. When you look at this event, it's name-brand guys. And I think that that's important for baseball to have. Because a lot of the other sports don't have it. I told you, the NBA dunk contest is guys you've never heard of. The supposed premier event for that All-Star weekend. The home run derby, at least you're getting guys you recognize. And you have Luis Robert, who has the second most home runs in the American League and the most home runs in this field, setting up as the one seed, yet he's not the favorite. So should he be? 312-332-3776. Pete Alonso, who has won this event, is the favorite at 3-1 to one odds. And Vladimir Guerrero Jr., who has contended, plus 360, is those are the two guys ahead of Luis Robert. Now, I just spoke with Jesse Rogers about what Robert could look like in this event, what this event might look like for Robert. And I kind of agree with Jesse where... Luis has a really steady, kind of easy swing. He's a home run hitter. This isn't Jose Ramirez of last year where he's kind of a contact guy that's got pop, but he's not going to change his swing. He's going to be more of the line drive guy, and he's not going to excel in a home run derby environment. I don't think that's Robert. Robert gets lift on the ball, and he hits it hard. And when you get fastball mistakes, which is all you get in the home run derby by design, you're going to hit the ball hard, high, and far. That's just what Luis Roberts' swing is designed to do. Hit bombs. And he's not swinging out of his shoes doing it. You look at a guy like Vladdy, does 360 whirlwinds. He looks like a dervish when he's in the batter's box. He will get tired. You can't swing that hard. You can't swing that violently. 140 times and talk about not getting gassed. Pete Alonso, look, I'm not going to take anything away from him. He's won this event. He's been in here. He's done it. He's prolific. He might be the best home run derby participant of all time. I'm not joking. 
should he be the favorite? Probably. But Luis Robert coming into his own and having a swing that I think is the most effortless of all of the guys in this field, the most designed to hit home runs and the most natural looking and the most natural feeling. Look, if I'm a betting man, five to one odds on Luis Robert Jr. to win the home run derby, I'm getting involved. I think it's a great bet. I think Jesse's spot on in the analysis. I agree with him. It is a natural swing. It's what he's designed to do, and you're going to get nothing but batting practice, slow, fastball mistakes. I don't know anybody that's going to have a swing and an approach that looks as calm and might be able to conserve energy. Remember, Robert, 25 years old. Now, this is a younger field, but he can conserve energy as well as anybody. I don't see why he's not the favorite. Maybe I'm wrong. 312-332-3776 if you've got thoughts on Luis Robert Jr. in the All-Star game. I also want to touch on another nugget, and I'm not going to freak out. I'm not going to get angry. I'm not going to lose control about it. It's just something that baseball does that none of the other professional leagues do that bothers me a little bit because I think it misses out on rewarding guys who are deserving. I told you about Lucas Giolito Uh, about a half hour ago, how he's back to the form that he was in during his all-star campaign in 2019. That season, uh, 14 and nine in 29 starts, a 3-4-1 ERA, three complete games. He had that no hitter. I mean, he was incredible. He was one of the better pitchers in baseball. We started looking at him as a potential ace. He finished sixth in Cy Young voting. He carried that on 2020, 2021, got Cy Young votes both of those seasons. This season in 18 starts, he's kind of back to that. 3-5 ERA, the strikeouts are still down from where they were then, but he's mixing his stuff up better. 124 ERA plus, he's up there with the better pitchers in baseball again. And baseball has a rule where by default, every team in the league must be represented with at least one all-star. The result of that is the Oakland A's, the Kansas City Royals, two teams that, and this isn't me being disrespectful, this isn't a shot, they are having historically bad seasons. A team like the Detroit Tigers that ranks among the worst in pitching outside of the starting and one of the worst in hitting, second worst slugging percentage in baseball, they have to have a default all-star. They're sending Michael Lorenzen. Now, Michael Lorenzen, I'm not picking on a guy. He's been a bright spot on a team that's been bad. But he's got a 4.03 ERA in 87 innings. He's only got 66 strikeouts. He is Detroit's all-star representative as a starting pitcher. You're telling me that slot can't go to a guy like Lucas Giolito, who's having a bounce-back season, 3-5 ERA, better numbers across the board, has pitched more, name pedigree. He's been there, done that. He's finished in Cy Young votings in three seasons. You're telling me that in a bounce-back year, a reclamation season for Luis Robert, where one could make the argument he's saving his career, you're telling me he can't get represented because Detroit's got to send Michael Lorenzen. And again, not a shot. Michael Lorenzen's having a nice year for the Tigers. But he's not an all-star. And this is where that rule bothers me. I don't think that we need to be in a position when we're talking about professional sports, major league baseball, 
where we need to be curtailing the rules so that every team gets a representative, so that fans get to see. He might not even pitch. They could leave him in the pen. Fans may not see him pitch. And, and that's, I think, where we run into an issue when we have a rule like this that requires every team to send an all-star. Because, honestly, I think Lucas Giolito gets an unfair rap here. I think he gets an unfair draw. He should have been in contention to be an all-star. The White Sox should be allowed to have multiple. And I know they're not having any great type of season, but teams should be allowed to have multiple all-stars in favor of these default guys. It's just my opinion. I'm not going to make a big deal. I'm not going to get angry. And it's not a shot at Michael Lorenzen. It's just something that bugs me a little bit. Uh, quickly, calling all travel baseball players, 15U to 17U. Do not miss your chance to try out for the White Sox elite travel team on July 17th and 18th at Benet Academy from 4.30 to 7.30 p.m. It'll be run by former MLB player Jim Aducci. White Sox elite has helped over 100 students pursue their dreams of playing at the college level. For more information, visit whitesox.com slash play. This is White Sox Weekly, ESPN 1000, the Hard Rock Casino, White Sox Network. It's White Sox Weekly, ESPN 1000, the Hard Rock Casino, White Sox Network. If you're looking for a unique way to start your game day, treat your group to a pregame patio party. You'll get two hours of all-you-can-eat buffet along with unlimited beer. That's a win. Wine and Coca-Cola products. For more information, visit whitesox.com slash patio or call or text 312-674-1000. I got to tell you, that that sounds like a great deal. Two hours of all-you-can-eat and unlimited beer. I wouldn't pass that one up, Sox fans. Visit whitesox.com slash patio, call or text 312-674-1000. Talking a little bit about the All-Star Game coming up next week. Luis Robert Jr., the White Sox representative, and I had an issue with one of the All-Star rules, which is the default All-Star. Every team gets a representative, and I get it because it allows every team to be represented. It allows fans to have a reason to tune in. They get to see a guy from the team that they recognize. We all know, I'm not telling out-of-state secrets here that baseball is a regional sport most people probably watch just the team that they watch so you get to see a guy that you're familiar with in the all-star game i get why they do it i just think somebody like lucas giolito who's having an all-star caliber season should be represented ahead of a guy like michael lorenzen and again not a shot He's having a nice year. He's just not having an all-star year. But because of this rule, Detroit has to send somebody to the all-star game. They send starting pitcher Michael Lorenzen in a slot that I think could have gone to Lucas Giolito. Uh, I want to know if there's anything about the all-star game you would change. Maybe with the uniforms. uh, Maybe could it be starting pitchers going longer? Could it be the rule I like, which is... We can get rid of the default all-star and we'll just give it to the most deserving players. If there's anything you want to weigh in on, 312-332-3776. That's in the hopper, as well as Luis Robert in the home run derby. We'll get to this in a moment. I want to talk to Matt and Wheeling, who has something he wants to change about the all-star game. What's up, Matt? Hey, what's going on, Shay? I just want to hear your thoughts um, You know, on the jerseys. I know you guys were mentioning just now. Um, I kind of wish they'd go back to the players representing their, you know, their white and gray uniforms during the game. 
I know they switched it a couple of years ago where the, the real All-Star Game jerseys are now being played on Tuesday and the guys wear their normal jerseys on Monday during the batting practice and the, the home run derby. I just miss those classic shots of everybody wearing the white and grays, national anthem, different colors, and I'm going to miss that going forward. I really did enjoy that. And me being a, a baseball nerd, I think it was uh, really cool to see all those legends wearing their own team being represented. But don't get me wrong, the, uh, the Navy and Teal this year actually looked pretty sweet, and I actually did buy a uh, – Luis Robert Teal, I did cave on that, but that just missed the classic white and gray lining up on Tuesday. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, Matt, do you, do you like when they take the all-star jerseys and they like offer, you know, they'll have the all-star colors and the all-star jersey, but it has the team logo in the front? Can you get behind that? Yeah, I don't mind that either. And like, like I said, you know, the jersey sales, obviously, with the Navy and the Teal, is you know, that's yeah. a money grab. Those you know, are the kids cool. want to buy their jerseys. So I agree. I just bought the Luis Robert Teal one. And I just missed the, you know, like I said, I just missed the white and grays, classics. You know, seeing all the different colors, the blacks, the oranges, the greens, all the teams represented on the field at once. And it just, that's what I'm really going to miss about the, uh, the jersey swap between the days, the Monday and Tuesday switch. Matt, it's a good call. It's something I think a lot of people think about. And I remember when I was a kid watching the All-Star game. And I don't know, I, I, it's one of those things where my memory is maybe not as good as it should be because I can't remember how I felt about it. If I liked that they wore their own uniforms or if I would have rather they wore the American and National League uniforms. But I, I do kind of think there was something interesting about seeing everybody in their own team's uniform on the field. It's so rare and it felt uniquely baseball where you'd have uh, half the time when I was growing up, you'd have five Yankees out there in the infield like this year. It, can you imagine it just be for the national league? It'd literally be the Atlanta Braves infield. Every Jersey would be an Atlanta Braves Jersey and nobody else would be represented. There was the one year when the Royals had their run and won the world series. The entire all-star team would have been Kansas city Royals jerseys. So I don't know. I, I go both ways on it. I think they sell well. Uh, it's an opportunity for, like Matt mentioned, he went out and got the Robert All-Star jersey. It's an opportunity for you to get some cool stuff like that. If one of your favorite players gets a trip to the Home Run Derby or gets a trip to the All-Star game, you get an opportunity to buy something that you wouldn't otherwise get. It's a cool jersey to be able to buy. So I get why they do it, and uh, I, I do miss it. I think there's some traditionalism with having each guy go out there dressed the way they're dressed for their team. Uh, so... I don't know. I don't think we'll ever see it again, but it's a good call from Matt. 312-332-3776. Anything you would change about the All-Star game or maybe something you'd change about the Home Run Derby? Dan's in Arlington Heights. Dan, what do you got? Hey, so I think what, you know, and, and a lot of baseball fans can agree that what Major League Baseball has done with the Home Run Derby over the past four or five years, sort of modernizing and making it more exciting, has been awesome for the sport. I'm watching the Home Run Derby again. But what I don't like is because of this format, and it, you know, it just requires a lot of endurance, it requires a lot of guys taking some really big hacks, that you're starting to see sluggers on teams that are doing really, really well starting to opt out. So I think you're going to start to see more guys that are sluggers like Robert on teams that are you know, towards the bottom of the barrel going to be more prominently featured, which I think is nice as a White Sox fan, but I still want to see those sluggers on teams that are doing really, really well. I, I'd love it if there was a rule where it's like, hey, you, you can't opt out if you've got, you know, over you know, this stat line, you got to be in the home run derby. So you'd force guys to do the home run derby. 
Okay. Uh, it's an interesting take, Dan. Can I push back a little bit? Cause yeah, I, absolutely. I, I think you have Robert representing the White Sox, not necessarily because they're what you said, a bottom-of-the-barrel team, but more because he's second in the American League in home runs. He's finally yeah, having absolutely. this coming-out season. Like, he's he's a power hitter. I think I get the point you're making. We would all love to see Otani in the, play, in the home run derby. Exactly. Can I, can I frame the question for you a little differently? Please do. I don't think guys are sitting out because their teams are good. I think guys are sitting out because of, and I think it started happening in the mid to late 2000s, the myth, or maybe in some cases not a myth, that the swing changes and you start to hit worse after you do the home run derby. Is that more of the reason why guys aren't doing it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. Like, kind of like I was saying earlier, you're taking a lot of hacks, and it can probably do something funky to the swing. So what I guess maybe I'm trying to think about is how can we maintain the level of excitement with these guys that are up against the clock without, you know, tiring them out to the point where their swing for the rest of the season is screwed up. It's an interesting point, Dan. And, you know, I wanted to get to this anyway, so I guess I'll do it off of Dan's call because I've heard people talk about – are you worried with Luis Robert putting him in the home run derby? Will he do something to his swing? Will there be an adjustment in, in his approach because he's out there just trying to slug, just trying to hit home runs? Could he damage the second half of his season because he's out there in the home run derby with this unique approach where all you're doing is hitting batting practice and trying to crush balls? My pushback would be, And I kind of touched on it a segment ago. Robert's swing is just kind of his swing. It's it's natural. It's always uphill. It feels like it's got that kind of high angle bat path. He hits for power anyway. He's a more effortless swinger. He's not one of those violent swinging guys. You know, Otani at times can look really violent um, when he's swinging. Robert, I think it looks kind of breezy it looks a little more effortless i don't worry about him messing up his approach in the home run derby because i don't think he's going to change his approach i think he's kind of naturally conducive to hitting home runs last year jose ramirez was in the derby and jose ramirez has a really flat swing He's a guy who's going to hit line drives. He's going to hit for high average. He makes hard contact, but he's not hitting the ball up all the time, which means he's not hitting home runs all the time. So he goes to the home run derby, and he doesn't change his approach. And he has a really disappointing outing. He didn't hit a lot of home runs, but he kept his approach exactly the same. It just wasn't conducive for the event. Robert, I don't think, has that problem. I think Robert can keep his approach exactly where it is all season long, exactly where it's been so far this season, and still hit home runs in the Derby. I don't I, I don't see him needing to make a change, so I don't see any reason to worry. Similarly, and this comes back to more guys should be in these events, they shouldn't sit out of these events, Otani not participating, I don't think has anything to do with whether the Angels want to make the playoffs uh, or whatever that is. I don't think it has anything to do with that. I don't. I think Otani not doing it is a lot to do with 
one, he's a pitcher, and he doesn't want to deal with the extra endurance when he's pitching every five days that a home run derby would entail. And two, I doubt he wants to mess up his swing because we have seen it. Yeah, I remember years ago, Miguel Cabrera took took part in a home run derby, and it screwed him up. Like, that can happen. So I think that's why Otani doesn't want to do it. What I would say is I wish he would because his swing is so uphill. And if you've seen him hit, you know what I'm talking about. He swings straight up. And I've talked with uh, Jesse Rogers about this. I've talked with plenty of people. I heard Jeff Passan talking about it. The home runs he hits tower. 150 feet high, some of them, because his swing is so naturally an uppercut. I don't think a home run derby would hurt him. I think his swing just is what it is. It's built to hit dingers, and I want to see it in this event. I think it would be phenomenal for Otani to do it, and I don't think that he would mess up his approach at all. I know that that's like this big debate. Could guys go and screw up the remainder of their season if they take part in this event and and then they're not hitting as well because they get sucked into just trying to hit home runs? I think it's totally overhyped. One, I think baseball is kind of a cruel sport and a random sport where you can just slump. Like guys can be really hot to start a season and then slump to end a season. That can just happen and have nothing to do with a shift in the approach. Two, If you're offering me an opinion that a home run derby where you're taking at max 160 swings, these are Major League Baseball players. I would venture most of them are taking 10,000 plus swings a year. I don't think 160 isolated swings where they're just trying to hit bombs is going to alter their entire approach enough to be totally different. So it's just not something that I really worry about. And like I said, Luis Robert and the way that he approaches hitting and the way that he approaches baseball, I don't think it's an issue for him anyway. Uh, Be here on Friday, July 28th for our next post-game concert featuring country music artist Jake Owen, sponsored by Tito's Handmade Vodka. Exclusive Field Pass ticket packages are on sale now with limited availability. If you want more information, visit whitesox.com slash concert. Coming up on the other side of a conversation with Jeff Jones covers the St. Louis Cardinals for Belleville News. We'll do that next. It's White Sox Weekly, ESPN 1000, Hard Rock Casino, White Sox Network. White Sox Weekly, ESPN 1000, the Hard Rock Casino, White Sox Network. Shane Orling sitting in with you today. Connor McKnight will have the call of the game with Darren Jackson. 110 first pitch against the St. Louis Cardinals on the south side. Sox fans, run your socks off is back. Join us at Guaranteed Rate Field on Saturday, August 5th for the Run Your Socks Off 5K presented by Planet Fitness. Racers will cross the on-field finish line and can head up to the concourse to enjoy a post-race party. All net proceeds benefit White Sox charities. Learn more at whitesox.com slash run. Uh, I want to welcome in Jeff Jones. He covers the St. Louis Cardinals for Belleville News. He's on with us now. Jeff, how are you? Not bad, man. How are you guys doing this morning? I'm doing well. It's... Kind of funny that the White Sox and Cardinals are going at it right now because it's two teams that feel like they're in almost exactly the same spot. The expectations were probably a lot higher for both of our teams. White Sox currently in fourth place in the American League Central, starting to feel like they're kind of out of it. Cardinals were the favorites to win the NL Central, felt like everywhere preseason. And now you look at, could they be selling off? 
What's your take? How how much of a sell-off is this going to be for the Cards? Yeah, I, I think when you talk about a sell-off for the Cardinals, what we should start with is acknowledging that the two big guys at the corners are not going anywhere. So that's Goldschmidt and Arnado definitely wouldn't be a part of any of that. Other than that, I think that they're going to be open to a lot of different options, frankly. And, you know, when you kind of look at how their contractual situation works out and the guys they have that are going to be free agents, they have a lot of pitching, frankly, that could that could flood the market. And, you know, there's never a time during the year when pitching is more valuable than at the deadline. You look at teams that, that really need to add to their rotation between definitely Jack Flaherty and the Cardinals hope Jordan Montgomery, I guess, depending on what the MRI shows after he left with a hamstring injury last night. Those two guys would jump, I think, pretty close to the top of the list of the you know available rental starters, maybe you know maybe behind some of the White Sox guys, frankly. So you put those guys in the mix. You talk about a guy like Chris Stratton is going to be a free agent, especially Jordan Hicks is going to be a free agent. There's a lot of ways they could they could sort of cycle through this pitching step with some guys that frankly aren't very likely to be back in St. Louis next year either way. Jack Flaherty's a name you brought up. I think is fascinating. Uh, I was reading earlier has not surrendered a run since June 19th in Washington. Almost a full month where Jack Flaherty hasn't uh, surrendered a one a run struck out five in a scoreless start against the Marlins uh, the other day he's been excellent and I think would probably break through right there with Lucas Giolito as immediately one of the top names in this market yeah I agree you know I think that Flaherty's in an interesting spot because he will reach free agency this winter at 27. And so if you were to go into free agency uh, and be offered a qualifying offer, which would be a tough call for the Cardinals, I think it's pretty likely that he would take it because that's, that's going to be a one-year deal for between probably 19 and $20 million, and he would still hit the market a year later at age 28 uh, and be super valuable. So if you're the Cardinals, Flaherty is the guy to me that you would, you would most want to trade, right? Because he's the guy you'd have a hardest time qualifying if you're not comfortable paying him $20 million on a one-year deal and then letting him walk the free agency. Whereas Montgomery, this is going to be his last big bite at the apple. It's easier to qualify him under the assumption that he's not going to take it. So if Flaherty does hit the market, especially given how good he's been lately, I would expect he would draw a, a lot of interest around the league. Do you have any update on Jordan Montgomery left last night's game with that hamstring injury? Sox fans, I'm sure, watched. They saw it. Leaving that game, is there any update how long he might be out? Whenever you see a hamstring, it could be a really varying timetable. And does that impact the trade market for him at all? Well, so the short answer is no. Uh, we just left the morning availability with the manager here, and he didn't have an, uh, have an update yet. Montgomery was going in to get imaging this morning to see what it looks like. You know, when we talked to him last night, he seemed optimistic. Uh, that it wouldn't be it wouldn't be a huge issue. I, I guess we'll sort of see how that works out. You know, he said he'd never had a never had a soft tissue injury before in his career, and then he knocked on the wood locker behind him. So he seemed okay. You know, like he was moving around okay in the clubhouse, but with the hamstring, it, it's hard to tell. And especially because he did throw, I think, one extra pitch after he kind of slipped and fell up the first time, threw one more, and that's when uh, that's when the manager and, and the trader came out. So in terms of the trade market, yeah, for sure. You know, we're talking about what are we, three weeks out now from the trade deadline, and if Montgomery is going to be available on that market, teams are going to want to know he's healthy. Now, I guess on the upside, given that it is a lower body, it's a hamstring, and it's not anything in his arm, there's less uncertainty there. So if you're a team who's interested, you probably would still be interested if you assume that he's going to be able to be healthy for you down the stretch. Can you offer a little bit of insight on just how this season went so sideways last year they felt like they were ready to make that leap the start of this season certainly in the preseason me I think mostly everybody that's a baseball fan 
or pretends to be a prognosticator at least, would have told you the Cardinals had the best roster in the division and felt like they were ready to go with Paul Goldschmidt, Nolan Arenado, the pairing of Montgomery and Flaherty. It felt like this could be a season where they get back into the playoffs as a true World Series contender, and instead it's feeling like it's a little lost. Can you give any insight as to what went wrong? I think, frankly, it's just a matter of not being able to get out in the middle innings. You know, you, you kind of look at how this team was able to succeed last year. Down the stretch, it was Montgomery and it was Jose Quintana who offered them a lot of stability and offered them the starts that they needed to sort of get down, you know, to, to get down the stretch and survive last season. And you look at the year before, it was going out to trade for John Lester and Jay Happ. And those guys offered them, frankly, way better than, than I think the Cardinals even knew they were getting when they made those trades. And so, they haven't really had the stable starting pitching you need to be a contender, and now you're sort of seeing the bill come due for that because the Cardinals have you know have a number of starters who can get you through four, maybe five innings, and they have the bullpen guys you can rely on for maybe the eighth and ninth, but there's a lot of game between those two points, right? And, and that's you know where you saw that game go sideways last night. Yeah. Romero to Palante to Leahy. Look, the Cardinals are in a spot where Kyle Leahy got asked to make his major league debut last night with a one-run lead on the road in the seventh. And this is a guy who's been kind of a middling triple-A middle reliever. This is not the guy that you want on the mound with a one-run lead in the seventh, but that's who they have right now. And that, that's really kind of where the season breaks down is without length from the starters, the bullpen it just hasn't been able to hold up under the weight of what they've been asked to do. Is that a development issue? It feels like the Cardinals have been models of developing players and getting quality, you know, getting the best out of maybe lesser projected guys. This year that just hasn't been the case. Is it just a one-off, or is this maybe symptomatic of something bigger? No, I, I do think you're right that it is a development issue because the other problem for them is you kind of look at you know what they have or don't have down below. Before Leahy made his debut last night, the Cardinals had gotten one inning, one, from a pitcher making his major league debut so far this season. So what that says to me is that the pipeline has largely dried up kind of at the upper levels. Now, there are guys, you know, Tink Hens is an exciting prospect, but he's just got the double A and he can pitch in the Futures game. We talk about guys like, you know, Mike McGreevy, Gordon Graceffo. Maybe these are guys who become starters, but they're at triple A and they just got triple A. So there's really not a lot of upper level help. And that's been kind of a big focus for them. You know, there's been a lot of discussion about trying to find more swing and miss with the guys that they have and, and, and trying to develop that. And that's all fine and good. But if you don't have those guys in the system and you haven't built them up to now, it's really hard to pull those guys out of thin air, and, and they're paying the price for that. Before I let you go, I want to ask about the position players because you mentioned Paul Goldschmidt, Nolan Arenado, the corners. They're not going anywhere, but there are a lot of bats that could help contending teams in this lineup. And for whatever reason, it's not working for the Cardinals, but who do you expect them to shop as far as bats? You know, it, it's going to be interesting to see which bats are shoppable even. You know, you think about a guy like Paul DeYoung, who is a really strong defensive shortstop and has, has been much better offensively this year. But it's, it's really hard to imagine a team wanting to take on kind of the risk associated with him, given what his last couple of years have looked like. And frankly, he's got pretty pricey buyouts on two team options for the next two years. So that's a lot of money the teams are going to have to be taking on. You look outside of that, the really interesting thing to me is going to be what they eventually do with second base. Because between Brendan Donovan and Tommy Edmond and Nolan Gorman, you probably have to pick at least two, maybe one of those players to sort of shape what your roster looks like moving forward. You know, one of those guys, second baseman, maybe another one can move around the infield. But those are the guys, to me, that A, have value, and B, that I would be shopping around if I were the Cardinals because 
you know, you look at like Gorman, for example, that's, that's the guy who has a lot of pure power, but it's kind of a shaky defender at second, doesn't hit for a lot of average, is prone for some boom and bust. Edmund and Donovan are fairly similar. Edmund maybe is a little bit of a better defender, can move around a little bit more, play you a better outfield. Donovan maybe has some better bat to ball, some better on base. Uh, but, but, you know, there are some redundancies there. And so, you know, when you hear reports about the Cardinals and the Mariners, for example, talking about what does a young bat for a young pitcher look like, that to me is the area where, where you would probably get a little bit of traction. It's Jeff Jones. He covers the St. Louis Cardinals for Belleville News. Jeff, thanks for joining us today. Anytime, guys. Have a good one. This is White Sox Weekly, ESPN 1000, Hard Rock Casino, White Sox Network. Sox fans, start planning your outing to the ballpark, perfect for family reunions, fundraisers, and more. Plus, it's the best way to save on single-game prices. After all, White Sox games are better with a group. For more information, visit whitesox.com slash groups or call or text 312-674-1000. Rick Hahn spoke earlier this week about what the White Sox might look to do with the trade deadline. I have some news from around baseball. Some of it's surprising on what might, ha- might happen as the deadline approaches. We'll do that next. White Sox Weekly, the ESPN 1000, Hard Rock Casino, White Sox Network. White Sox Weekly, ESPN 1000, the Hard Rock Casino, White Sox Network. Join us on July 29th for a pregame Sox Crawl Day Party presented by Vizzy Hard Seltzer. Enjoy the summer vibes, Sox baseball, and a party in the outfield with live entertainment from our Sox DJ. This crawl features food and beverage happy hour specials, exclusive co-branded sunglasses, and more. To purchase tickets, visit whitesox.com slash crawl. Trade deadlines coming up. Major League Baseball. Uh, it is August 1st, I believe is the date. So we are three weeks away, and the stove is scalding hot. The three of us in here right now, our great executive producer, Brendan Riley, and our guy on the board, Jake Cantu, just talking off the air about all of the excitement around some of the trade deadline stuff. We'll get to all of that here. I want to take some time because the conversation around this trade deadline is going to be as fascinating as any deadline maybe in the history of the league because of one team. One team that's had a horrific week and may need to swallow a pill here that would alter the landscape of baseball and create the most fascinating trade we may ever see. We'll get to that in a moment because I want to start with the White Sox, who have a tough decision to make. And maybe this week is helping them make that decision. You you drop the series three straight to Toronto. After losing the series to the A's, now you have the weekend series that you got off to a win against St. Louis. But if you're really taking a hard look at the division, seven and a half games out, you know, you're 14 games under 500 today. You really take stock of where you are with the trade deadline just three weeks out. It feels like you're in a position to sell. Rick Hahn talked about this earlier. And with three weeks to go, Rick Hahn talked about where the Sox are relative to the trade deadline. Obviously, we've got big decisions to make by the end of this month or August 1st. Uh, I've seen and heard from, I've seen quotes from players. I've heard from players directly. Pedro and the coaches have heard from from players directly uh, that their priority and focus is getting things right here and figuring out a way for us to win this division and then do some damage in the postseason. 
I or any of us in baseball ops isn't going to do anything to take the focus away from that by saying this is our direction, this is what we're doing, this is where we're committed, uh, and we're going to do everything in our power to continue to support the guys that you know want to get this thing right. And hopefully that starts today. Uh, I know we. I'm fairly sure we have the best record in the division since May 1st, but at the same time, that's only been a couple of games over 500, I believe, which obviously hasn't made up for the, the deficit we carved for ourselves in, in April. So uh, it's good to see the commitment. It's good to see, to an extent, the results since May 1, uh, but we obviously have a fair amount of work still to do ahead of us. Rick Hahn speaking earlier this week ahead of the Toronto series. The White Sox, of course, lost all three games in that series. That may have helped uh, Rick Hahn take a side on that. But it sounds like, look, there is a realism to you are only seven and a half games out. And it does feel like they continue to be on the precipice of getting right. Maybe we've hit the turning point and it's full sail, full go. But... I don't blame Rick on keeping the door open. You've won the first against St. Louis. If you win the three, then you're in a position where you can start to look forward and go, maybe we do have an opportunity to win this thing and to, to buy. I don't know that that's going to happen. But Han also offered an opinion on what the return might look like for players and some of the demand uh, for players affects and what they do. Well, the well, trade market and the demand for your players and, and what might be available, does that all enter into what? I think so, absolutely. I mean, it, look, in the end, it's in the end, we're going to make a decision about what is best for the long-term health of the organization, with obviously the priority being placed on the here and now, because this is the only year we can control. Uh, ultimately, if you're overwhelmed by a potential return, that may tilt your balance more towards the future than the present. If we don't play at a certain level, that may tilt your focus more towards the future than the present. But again, as we sit here today, the goal tonight is to beat the Blue Jays, go on a run, and continue to you know, give the guys in there who are fighting for this season a reason to believe it's going to work. I talked about this a little bit to start the show today, what the demand might look like for players that you get back. I told you last year, a similar, and it's not exactly the same, but the Reds traded Tyler Molly, a, a not super big name pitcher. He was having a worse year than Lucas Giolito is having right now. And Giolito is probably a slightly bigger name. Now, Tyler Molly got you three prospects from the Minnesota Twins. The highest rated was number seven. He also got you Spencer Steer, who is contending for National League Rookie of the Year. I think that's where the return for players comes into this. Rick Hahn looking at what you might get back for Lucas Giolito. Again, bigger name than Tyler Molly. Not a ton bigger, but a bigger name than Tyler Molly. Having a better season than Tyler Molly was a year ago. Could you get an offer that includes somebody's prospect that now you might not get a one but could you get a number three prospect from somebody and a number seven or eight does that increase the appetite to move somebody i think there has to be an open-mindedness to it and i brought up the reds as an example of what it looks like elsewhere you could do it with the arizona diamondbacks you have to make these difficult decisions and the Reds did it with Tyler Molly. The turnaround was you get the reward of Spencer Steer having this incredible season, being one of the engines on a team that has become the most exciting in baseball. Things can happen quickly if you're savvy. You have to be willing to bite the bullet, to make the decision, to swallow the pill. And if you do, oftentimes you can get 
rewarded. You can get good talent back, and you can speed things up. I want to pivot the conversation. I'm sticking with the trade deadline. But there are stories that are now starting to float that suggest we could be looking at a historic MLB trade deadline where you would see what I would venture would be the highest single price paid via trade for a player on a contract that ends, a pending free agent. Shohei Otani could still be traded. As of today, the Angels have lost eight of their last ten. They are in fourth place in the American League West, seven and a half games out of the division, 45 and 45. Wild card prospects, eh, they ain't great. Four and a half out in the wild card chase. This is a team where Shohei Otani has pretty explicitly said, if we aren't going to contend for the playoffs in a World Series, I'm not going to stay with the Los Angeles Angels. Which leads me to this. Bill Plaschke this morning in the Los Angeles Times. Reeling Angels need to swallow hard and trade Shohei Otani. What would that look like? When I tell you that off the air in this room, that conversation dominated a commercial break, I'm not kidding. Because you look at what Juan Soto got traded for recently to the San Diego Padres and the monstrous haul that it took. You're talking about C.J. Abrams, Mackenzie Gore. If you don't know those names, these are some of the most highly touted prospects out of one of the better farm systems in baseball at the time that had to get sent to Washington for the rental of Juan Soto. Think about what it cost to get Max Scherzer to the Dodgers a few years ago. You're talking about top prospects. I mean, when you think about Shohei Otani getting traded, Are we talking seriously about it's going to cost a team two prospects in the top five, three prospects in the top five, four in the top ten, and a major league ready player, if not a guy who's already at the major league level, who's young with some upside? What would you not give up? If you're a team that's contending and you feel like you can win a World Series and you're a starting pitcher in a bat away, would you mortgage your entire future? Think about your entire farm system. Would you mortgage it to get Shohei Otani? If he's available at the deadline, I would venture we will see the single highest price paid for a rental player, and I don't know that it would ever be trumped. If you're a contending team with a hole in your rotation and everybody needs a lefty bat, oh, there you go. Or Excuse me, righty bat. Everybody needs a bat. Everybody needs a starting pitcher. There he is. I, you have to. I would mortgage everything in my farm system. I'd give up picks. I'd give up top talents. I'd send whatever my six-hole hitter is who can help you, and he's young with upside. I'd mortgage everything. It's White Sox Weekly. I'm going to pause 10 seconds for stations to identify themselves. Since ESPN 1000, Hard Rock Casino, White Sox Network, it's White Sox Weekly, Shane Orling sitting in for Connor McKnight. Distilled and bottled in Austin, Texas. Crafted to be savored responsible. Greeny, 10 to noon weekdays, ESPN Chicago. It's White Sox Weekly on the ESPN 1000, Hard Rock Casino, White Sox Network. Shane Orling filling in for Connor today. He has the call of the game. I'm taking you... 
Right up to pregame coming your way in a half hour. It will be me up to the first pitch, 310, Connor McKnight and Darren Jackson on the call of the game. Sox fans, join us for Miller Lite Baseball and Brews starting at only $19. This offer includes one ticket and two beers to new and expanded seating locations across the ballpark. Must be 21 and over with a valid ID. To purchase tickets, visit whitesox.com slash brews. I mentioned Connor McKnight on the call of the game today. He also had a conversation with White Sox Director of Amateur Scouting, Mike Shirley. The two of them got together and had a talk. We'll pl- uh, play that for you now. Mike, I really appreciate the time and sitting down. I know you guys and your staff are absolutely pressed with the Major League Baseball draft coming up on Sunday. If you can, take White Sox fans through what the preparation is like here now that you're cramming for the test. Yeah, I mean, it's a process that starts February 1st in a lot of ways when college baseball kicks off. And it obviously kicks off in warmer climates first. So, um, and it it's a deep process from February 1st all the way till we get the draft day. And there's no moment where you feel like it gets any easier. This is, thing has become full button, full charge. It's on, and it's tough to find an off button on it anymore with the amount of players, prospects, and development as baseball as a whole in the, amateur, in the amateur sphere that you're attacking it every day. Now, when we get to Chicago here, meetings are going on. It's a, I mean, it's been 11 to 11. I mean, it's I mean, it's full go. You're in a room where you're trying to put this together. You're trying. We're getting two. I mean, this is full meals upstairs. We're getting it all. You're in there. You're checked in, um, and it's a deep dive. From you know, we have not 600 players on the board. We're working through to make sure we get it right, and it's a lot of work. When we look back through the last couple of years of the draft, obviously 2020 having been just five rounds. Do you think that we are? through the effects of of that pandemic as it regards the talent and where guys are at, where they might have been otherwise? I mean, I think we're looking at a couple of players in the college ranks here that may get to 15 that probably aren't in this draft had 2020 not happened. Well, here's the interesting part about that. The pandemic hits. One of the last high school games I saw was Dylan Cruz, who may be the first overall pick. Yeah. The scouts had gone home. Jerry Reinsdorf, we had a meeting that day. Jerry Reinsdorf had came to us. Rikana came to us. We had a staff meeting. It's time to go home, boys. This is a serious issue that the world is going to yeah, face. Yeah. Everybody go home. I stayed in Florida that day. I went to see Dylan Cruz. He was a different player that day. No scouts were around. And he had been pressing a little bit. And that was a lot, one of the last high school players I had seen play that spring. And now he'd possibly be the first pick of the draft. Yeah, the LSU slugger for those who right. don't follow the draft all so that well. You think about where the pandemic is, but also in this draft, there's all the high school kids yeah. in a five-round draft that did not sign Sure. that are now on the forefront. So the depth of this, I think this is going to be the last year where the pandemic buildup makes the draft a little deeper. I think next year we get back to the normal cycle of what that player looks like. But this is the five-round draft. All these kids went to school and did not sign. So You, you mentioned that... that in your opinion, Cruz kind of had a different day that day without the scouts. I, I find the Major League Baseball draft so interesting, so difficult for a whole lot of reasons. I would imagine that you probably see yourself, or maybe others in your staff do, as as, as much psychologist as scout these days. I mean, whether we're talking about 18-year-old kids or 22-year-old college seniors, there's a lot between the years that they've yet to figure out, and you've got to kind of assess where they're at. 
mean, that's the critical piece of it. Like, talent is one thing, performance is another, data is another, then what's the makeup? And I think that is the fourth piece and the last piece you have to dive into. Do I like the talent of the player? Does he perform? What does his performance look like? Stats, a little deeper dive, the scientific piece of what this has become with data, metrics, and then the last thing is, okay, if I like those things or I don't like those things, what is the makeup of the player? Is he confident? Is he non-confident? Have there been challenges? Is his road easy? What is the background? What do the parents do? How was he raised? I can keep going and going and going on do we figure out what this is because that's where, if you're buying a high school player today for the most part, they cost you a lot of your pool space. So you have to be right. They are worth it if you get them right. So you have to get them right. Talk with Mike Shirley, Director of Amateur Scouting with the White Sox here on White Sox Weekly. You have, this is your fourth draft yes, in, in the current position. And you have talked, I think, each and every year about your, I don't want to put words in your mouth, so please, your belief in the high school player. Why do you espouse it the way you do? How do you see high school players differently, perhaps, than some of your peers? Why is that so important to you? Because they're exciting. They're exciting. That is the dreamy part of the job. That's the fun part of the job. These young, talented men, young men who are developing in front of your eyes. You watch them. Sometimes we see them the first time when they're 16 or 15 years old. You recognize the ability and you see this thing grow like a flower or like or anything that grows and you're like, wow, this is special. And if you look at some of the impact of what the Mike Trouts, the famous people who play in our game every day that people you know spend a lot of money to go watch play because they're, it's exhilarating to watch them play. Those are the magic pieces of this game. That's the fun piece, you know? And I think you have to like enjoy that part. I'm passionate about that part. I can't help it. That's the best part of the job. If I'm, if I'm not passionate about that, I'm, you know, any scout should go do something else. Feel the same way. That's the best part. You, you've taken the, we've got the track record on you, Mike. First round, yeah, college, you've got a college pitch, you got a prep bat, then you went prep pitch. Right. So, uh oh. College bat completes the <laughs> foursome. I don't know. I mean, you got a whole, you can take them out to the golf course right. and it's your White Sox charity so, outing. I'm yeah. just saying. Yeah, so we, you know, and I, it's, uh, I said that is the depth of this draft as a college position player, is the depth of that draft. When you, if you walk up on the draft board, if you're allowed, <laughs> all right, you would see the depth of that blue tag. I think I'd be hunted down by yes, security pretty yeah. early on in that journey. That, the, that, that blue tag is a, you know, the position players are blue up there, right? That blue tag, that list is longer. Yeah. You know, then the yellow tag are the pitchers of that group that we're looking at at pick 15 because that has been the strength of this. Once again, so we talked about that pandemic and all those kids went to school that had a chance to develop these big schools. That pool is pretty deep. That's what makes it exciting. Baseball fans are, are very focused on their big league club, right? Yes, this is the only sport we've got where people spend five, six years in a minor league system before making a gigantic Absolutely. impact on the major league side. I know that your focus is mostly on the drafting and development analysis of these young prospects, but at some point, you and your staff meld with Pedro and, and his coaching staff and Rick Hahn and his front office staff. If you could, how have those relationships changed a little bit over the last four years for you? And obviously with, with Pedro it being his first year, what's it like to work along with him? You no, know, it's interesting. Pedro and I were teammates together in the minor leagues. Okay, so I, I've known him since I was a young man trying to figure out a playing career as he was, you know. Um, so I th it's strange to see how your, you know, your professional life after a playing career unfolds. Um, I think Pedro Grafal is an extraordinary leader. He was an extraordinary leader when I played with him. I've never seen a catcher 
hold pitch, a pitching staff so accountable like he did as a player. So he's, he's the right guy to sit in the dugout and hold those players accountable because that's what he's always done. So that's the exciting part. Um, as far as the front office, they've been tremendous. Rick Hahn has been so supportive. Jeremy Haber, Chris Getz, Kenny Williams, they've been so supportive of us and what we're trying to accomplish with this. Um, especially with the selection of the high school players that are doing well for us and Nicole Sun Montgomery and Noah Schultz. They, that was that was a big move for us because there had been a lot of college drafts here through the years at the top of the draft. And just to get the move and just them have faith in us that we wanted to take this in this direction, we're so grateful to scouts that we've been able to walk in that arena, have their support, provide guidance for us even in that arena. What you know, Question us, prove our conviction to them. It's been a rewarding experience and very supportive experience from those guys. What is... <laughs> This is the talk radio part of the interview, yeah. right? What does the data do for you and your scouts these days, right? We read about every single number that can be registered on a baseball field, and we, as baseball fans, range from thinking this is, I, we never needed to know this when Mickey Mantle was hitting, or I love every single decimal point, give me everything. What's most important as we approach this draft for fans to look at data-wise? On the pitching front, it's huge. I mean, you have to have a full comprehension, and it's table stakes now. Every major league team, it's level. There's the comprehension of what data means. It's level in major league baseball. It's starting to be more level in the amateur world. Okay, it's imperative that you understand the fastballs you're buying. What does a fastball mean? How does it play? What is the shape of the fastball? How much does it spin? What is the axis it spins at? What is the vertical approach angle? You know, what is the induced vertical? There, what is the extension in this that matters so much that you help a heater play? I can tell you that Noah Schultz had an elite spin yeah. curveball, a slider that he could use anytime he wanted to get back and count. That was the intriguing part about selecting Noah Schultz because he could use this elite weapon that has weaponry in terms of science of it, how it leaves his fingertips, how it rolls into the onto the plate that's elite, and he had feel for it. He can use it behind an account. He can use it ahead in the account. It was a mature feel for a breaking ball. That scientific measurement of those pieces of the puzzle give you proof what your eyes are seeing as a scout. You're seeing a really good breaking ball, the data proves it. How does that data help, or I guess maybe a better way to put it is, when you guys look at the players that you'll scout, the guy that you'll take 15, how much of your decision will be based as much on what they can do now versus what you believe the organization can get them to do better? Are there, you know, like adding a pitch to a guy who's maybe doesn't throw a change up in high school? You know that with the data, especially on the pitch front, you know you may have to add a pitch based off what the data analysis of his present profile is. You may may like the fastball, the breaking ball. If he's throwing a curveball now, he may need to add a slider because you know the curveball is inefficient or doesn't have the the spin metric that we're looking for, so he may have to add the pitch. But there's that thing is just the scientific nature behind the game today. It gives proof on why you're selecting players, and it gives you a little bit more evidence on what you're dealing with. And all it is, are you prosecuting the case or defending the case? It's all it becomes. And the data gives you some security as a scout. If I'm being questioned on the like, if I, how much I like this player or how much I should like him, the data helps you defend the player. You've said that this draft sets up with the top seven being, you know, kind of an elite class of player. I think the best players. So it's even, about seven for us. Even yes. those of us who, who moderately follow the draft know Paul Skeens, and we've heard of Dylan Cruz. We've talked about him already. Right. You guys will be at 15. 
There's variance in this draft, though, because slot value is a thing, and we don't deal with that in the NBA or the NFL, not really. Um, so it's entirely possible that things get a little weird, a little screwy here in the first couple of picks, and you guys are looking at a, a perhaps a player pool that you didn't expect. How do you plan for it? Well, I wish it would get so screwy that, you know, <laughs> Max Clark, who I've known since he's been the seventh grade, who I've been around so much in my life, could get the 15. Sure. I'd take that. Those guys in my, my staff know how close the kid and I are. I wish that would get to us, but I don't think it's going to get that screwy for us. Pretty good player. Yeah, pretty good player. But yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, you hope something, you're prepared for it. That's what I mean. Picking the middle of the round has been a lot of work. A lot of work. Um, my wife can attest to that. Yeah. My children can attest to that. The scouts in our office, their families can attest to the amount of work and time we've had to put into it because you're, you're measuring, you know, eight to 10 guys in front of you and eight to 10 guys behind you. And the amount of work it takes to put those those profiles again on all those players, all the looks it takes, it's relentless. That's what I mean. When I tell you it started last fall, it's actually started last fall to get to where we are today. It's relentless amount of effort of being on planes, driving cars, bad food. Just there's so much that kind of goes into this that it's, that it's crazy. How do you guys evaluate the ability and or need to go over slot, go under slot, balance that idea of taking a player in a position that benefits you later on or going whole hog for a, a player at whether it's 15 or, or later on down the line. It's, it's a tricky walk that everybody's got to deal with now. And here's, the, here's what's interesting. When I tell you the depth of the position yeah. players, I'm like, if you think player eight is equivalent to player 14, why would you spend the, the slot value at player eight if the same player is at 14? Sure. And that's a, you're sort of saving four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars between those two numbers. A meaningful number in this draft, yeah. Yeah, that you can buy another piece down the road that may cost a little bit more on the signability of the college player or the high school player. That's what's going to be tricky about this draft. There will be players don't, maybe not realize it today, they're going to be on sale. And the player that may take the deal may take this to get a little bit more screwy, as we called it, because the player who took the deal or took less money to go in that slot, if he felt like he was going to go 14 anyway, he's got to go to get a chance to go eight and get the same amount of money. Yeah. He, that may occur. So based off maybe they have that player evaluated like that. So this pool value on this thing can get it, it can be used in your advantage, but also you may be able to get a player fall down and have to pay for him a little bit more because they tried to undercut him in front of you as well. So there's almost two ways to attack that, that piece. And we're ready for both those. We've talked about both those scenarios upstairs. Yeah. So. Mike, last one for you. And I, I think, you know, now that there's, you know, a body of work, you've mentioned the players that, that you take in the first round. And I think White Sox fans are familiar with a lot of them given the success that they've had in the minor league system so far. What would you say has changed the most about your perspective toward the draft, having done this job for four years? What what could you go back and tell Mike Shirley day one of the draft, first year you're running it, and go, hey, Mike, maybe pay attention to this? Yeah, and I've learned, I mean, I think there's learned, I feel more comfortable doing this. It's still a real challenge. There's nothing, I, I've, as a player, it's hard. I've coached, it's hard. This is really hard. I mean, I really do think, and I feel like I'm prepared. I live this. I'm in it every day. But I thought it was going to get easier. I'm just going to be honest with you. And I'm not going to, this has been the toughest one. Yeah. I'm going, I'm going to leave here. I'm going to go back upstairs. Yep. It's four floors up. 
and I'm back in the madness, and it's not getting any easier. But that's that's I have so much respect for the game, mm. how good major league players are. I have so much respect for what Rick and Kenny and Chris Getz and Jeremy do to give them pieces. It's just hard, and it takes a lot of work. If you're not all in, you better do something else. But we feel good about the work. But I told my wife this before I left home, Miss Kimberly, this is not getting any easier. So I do. It's just a real challenge. It's just it's how it is. And but look, man, I'm all in. Let's go. Garrett guessed this morning. Hey, you okay? You ready to go? And guess, don't ask me. That. I'm all in. This is, let's go. You know what I mean? So that, that's the things that we're, we're you know, that, that staff, those guys are tremendous. I'm excited about it. So. Mike, appreciate the time. Yes, Best of luck Sunday. Yeah. That was Connor McKnight with White Sox Director of Amateur Scouting, Mike Shirley. This is White Sox Weekly. Shane Orling sitting in, taking you up to pregame. Coming your way in about 13 minutes. It'll be Connor and DJ on the call of the game. First pitch, 1-10 against the St. Louis Cardinals on the south side. White Sox Weekly continues. This is the ESPN 1000 Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network. White Sox Weekly on the ESPN 1000 Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network. Shane Orling filling in for Connor today. He has the call of the game. I'm taking you right up to pregame coming your way in a half hour. It will be me up to the first pitch, 310. Connor McKnight and Darren Jackson on the call of the game. Sox fans, join us for Miller Lite Baseball and Brews starting at only $19. This offer includes one ticket and two beers to new and expanded seating locations across the ballpark. Must be 21 and over with a valid ID. To purchase tickets, visit whitesocks.com slash brews. I mentioned Connor McKnight on the call of the game today. He also had a conversation with White Sox Director of Amateur Scouting, Mike Shirley. The two of them got together and had a talk. We'll pl- uh, play that for you now. Mike, I really appreciate the time and sitting down. I know you guys and your staff are absolutely pressed with the Major League Baseball draft coming up on Sunday. If you can, take White Sox fans through what the preparation is like here now that you're cramming for the test. Yeah, I mean, it's a process that starts February 1st in a lot of ways when college baseball kicks off. And it obviously kicks off in warmer climates first. So, um, and it it's a deep process from February 1st all the way till we get the draft day. And there's no moment where you feel like it gets any easier. This is, thing has become full button, full charge. It's on, and it's tough to find an off button on it anymore with the amount of players, prospects, and development as baseball as a whole in the, amateur, in the amateur sphere that you're attacking it every day. Now, when we get to Chicago here, meetings are going on. It's a, I mean, it's been 11 to 11. I mean, it's I mean, it's full go. You're in a room where you're trying to put this together. You're trying. We're getting two. I mean, this is full meals upstairs. We're getting it all. You're in there. You're checked in, um, and it's a deep dive. From you know, we have not 600 players on the board. We're working through to make sure we get it right, and it's a lot of work. When we look back through the last couple of years of the draft, obviously 2020 having been just five rounds. Do you think that we are? through the effects of of that pandemic as it regards the talent and where guys are at, where they might have been otherwise? I mean, I think we're looking at a couple of players in the college ranks here that make it to 15 that probably aren't in this draft had 2020 not happened. Well, here's the interesting part about that. The pandemic hits, 
One of the last high school games I saw was Dylan Cruz, who no may way. be the first overall pick. Yeah. The scouts had gone home. Jerry Reinsdorf, we had a meeting that day. Jerry Reinsdorf had came to us. Rikana came to us. We had a staff meeting. It's time to go home, boys. This is a serious issue that the world is going to yeah. face. Yeah, Everybody go home. I stayed in Florida that day. I went to see Dylan Cruz. He was a different player that day. No scouts were around. And he had been pressing a little bit. And that was a lot, one of the last high school players I had seen play that spring. And now he'd possibly be the first pick of the draft. Yeah, the LSU slugger for those who right. don't follow the draft all so that well. You think about where the pandemic is, but also in this draft, there's all the high school kids yeah. in a five-round draft that did not sign. Sure. That are now on the forefront. So the depth of this, I think this is going to be the last year with the pandemic buildup. Makes the draft a little deeper. I think next year we get back to the normal cycle of what that player looks like. But this is the five-round draft. All these kids went to school and did not sign. So You, you mentioned that, that, in your opinion, Cruz kind of had a different day that day without the scouts. I, I find the Major League Baseball draft so interesting, so difficult for a whole lot of reasons. I would imagine that you probably see yourself, or maybe others in your staff do, as as, as much psychologist as scout these days. I mean, whether we're talking about 18-year-old kids or 22-year-old college seniors, there's a lot between the ears that they've yet to figure out, and you've got to kind of assess where they're at. I mean, that's the critical piece of it. Like, talent is one thing, performance is another, data is another, then what's the makeup? And I think that is the fourth piece and the last piece you have to dive into. Do I like the talent of the player? Does he perform? What does his performance look like? Stats, a little deeper dive, the scientific piece of what this has become with data, metrics, and then the last thing is, okay, if I like those things or I don't like those things, what is the makeup of the player? Is he confident? Is he non-confident? Have there been challenges? Is his road easy? What is the background? What do the parents do? How was he raised? I can keep going and going and going on do we figure out what this is because that's where, if you're buying a high school player today for the most part, they cost you a lot of your pool space. So you have to be right. They are worth it if you get them right. So you have to get them right. Talk with Mike Shirley, Director of Amateur Scouting with the White Sox here on White Sox Weekly. You have, this is your fourth draft yes, in, in the current position. And you have talked, I think each and every year, about your, I don't want to put words in your mouth, so please, your belief in the high school player. Why do you espouse it the way you do? How do you see high school players differently, perhaps, than some of your peers? Why is that so important to you? Because they're exciting. They're exciting. That is the dreamy part of the job. That's the fun part of the job. These young, talented men, young men who are developing in front of your eyes. You watch them. Sometimes we see them the first time when they're 16 or 15 years old. You recognize the ability and you see this thing grow like a flower or like or anything that grows and you're like wow this is special and if you look at some of the impact of what the mike trouts the famous people who play in our game every day that people you know spend a lot of money to go watch play because they're it's exhilarating to watch them play those are the magic pieces of this game that's the fun piece you know and i think you have to like enjoy that part i'm passionate about that part i can't help it it's the best part of the job if i'm if i'm not passionate about that I am, you know, any scout should go do something else. Feel the same way. That's the best part. You, you've taken them. We've got the track record on you, Mike. First round, yeah, college. You've got a college pitch. You got a prep bat. Then you went prep pitch. Right. So, uh oh, college bat completes the foursome. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you got a whole. You can take them out to the golf course right. and it's your White Sox charity right. outing. I'm yeah. just saying. 
Yeah. So we, you know, and I, I, it's, uh, I said that is the depth of this draft as a college position player, is the depth of that draft. When you, if you walk up on the draft board, if you're allowed, <laughs> all right, you would see the depth of that blue tag. I think I'd be hunted down by yes, security pretty yeah. early on in that journey. That the, that that blue tag is a, you know, the position players are blue up there, right? That blue tag, that list is longer. Yeah. You know, then the yellow tag are the pitchers of that group that we're looking at at pick 15 because that has been the strength of this. Once again, as we talked about that pandemic and all those kids went to school, that chance to develop these big schools, that pool is pretty deep. That's what makes it exciting. Baseball fans are, are very focused on their big league club, right? Yes, this is the only sport we've got where people spend five, six years in a minor league system before making a gigantic yes. impact on the major league side. I know that your focus is mostly on the drafting and development analysis of these young prospects, but at some point, you and your staff meld with Pedro and, and his coaching staff and Rick Hahn and his front office staff. If you could, how had those relationships changed a little bit over the last four years for you? And obviously with, with Pedro it being his first year, what's it like to work well, along with him? You no, know, it's interesting. Pedro and I were teammates together in the minor leagues. Okay, so I, I've known him since I was a young man trying to figure out a playing career as he was, you know. Um, so I, it's strange to see how your, you know, your professional life after a playing career unfolds. Um, I think Pedro Griffal is an extraordinary leader. He was an extraordinary leader when I played with him. I've never seen a catcher hold pitch, a pitching staff so accountable like he did as a player. So he's, he's the right guy to sit in the dugout and hold those players accountable because that's what he's always done. So that's the exciting part. Um, as far as the front office, they've been tremendous. Rick Hunt has been so supportive. Jeremy Haber, Chris Getz, Kenny Williams, they've been so supportive of us and what we're trying to accomplish with this. Um, especially with the selection of the high school players that are doing well for us, and Nicole Montgomery and Noah Schultz, they that was that was a big move for us because there's been a lot of college drafts here through the years at the top of the draft, and just to get the move and just them have faith in us that we wanted to take this in this direction, we're so grateful to scouts that we've been able to walk in that arena, have their support, provide guidance for us even in that arena. What you know, question us prove our conviction to them it's been a rewarding experience and very supportive experience from those guys what is this is the talk radio part of the interview yeah. right what does the data do for you and your scouts these days right we read about every single number that can be registered on a baseball field and we as baseball fans range from thinking this is i we never needed to know this when mickey mantle was hitting or i love every single decimal point give me everything What's most important as we approach this draft for fans to look at data-wise? On the pitching front, it's huge. I mean, you have to have a full comprehension, and it's table stakes now. Every Major League team, it's level. There's the comprehension of what data means, it's level in Major League Baseball. It's starting to be more level in the amateur world, okay? It's imperative that you understand the fastballs you're buying. What does a fastball mean? How does it play? What is the shape of the fastball? How much does it spin? What is the axis it spins at? What is the vertical approach angle? You know, what is the induced vertical? There, what is the extension in this that matters so much that you help a heater play? I can tell you that Noah Schultz had an elite spin yeah. curveball, a slider that he could use anytime he wanted to get back and count. That was the intriguing part about selecting Noah Schultz because he could use this elite weapon that has 
weaponry in terms of the science of it, how it leaves his fingertips, how it rolls into the, onto the plate that's elite. And he had feel for it. He can use it behind an account. He can use it ahead in an account. It was a mature feel for a breaking ball. That scientific measurement of those pieces of the puzzle give you proof what your eyes are seeing as a scout. You're seeing a really good breaking ball, the data proves it. How does that data help, or I guess maybe a better way to put it is, when you guys look at the players that you'll scout, the guy that you'll take 15, how much of your decision will be based as much on what they can do now versus what you believe the organization can get them to do better? Are there, you know, like adding a pitch to a guy who's maybe doesn't throw a change up in high you school? I think you or, know that with the data, especially on the pitch front. You know you may have to add a pitch sure. based off what the data analysis of his present profile is. You may you may like the fastball, the breaking ball. If he's throwing a curveball now, he may need to add a slider because you know the curveball is inefficient or doesn't have the, the spin metric that we're looking for, so you may have to add the pitch. But there's that thing is just the scientific nature behind the game today. It gives proof yeah. on why you're selecting players, and it gives you a little bit more evidence on what you're dealing with. And all it is, are you prosecuting the case or defending the case? It's all it becomes. And the data gives you some security as a scout. If I'm being questioned on the like, if I, how much I like this player or how much I should like him, the data helps you defend the player. You've said that this draft sets up with the top seven being, you know, kind of an elite class of player. I think the best players. It's even, about seven for us. Even yes. those of us who, who moderately follow the draft know Paul Skeens, and we've heard of Dylan Cruz. We've talked about him already. Right. You guys will be at fifteen. There's variance in this draft, though, because slot value is a thing, and we don't deal with that in the NBA or the NFL, not really. Um, so it's entirely possible that things get a little weird, a little screwy here in the first couple of picks, and you guys are looking at a, a perhaps a player pool that you didn't expect. How do you plan for it? Well, I wish it would get so screwy that you know <laughs> Max Clark, who I've known since he's been this seventh grade, who I've been around so much in my life, could get to 15. Sure. I'd take that. Those guys in my, in my staff know how close the kid and I are. I wish that would get to us, but I don't think it's going to get that screwy for us. Pretty good player. Yeah, pretty good player. But, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, you hope something you're prepared for. That's what I mean. Picking the middle of the round has been a lot of work. A lot of work. Um, my wife can attest to that. Yeah. My children can attest to that. The scouts in our office, their families can attest to the amount of work and time we've had to put into it because you're, you're measuring, you know, eight to ten guys in front of you and eight to ten guys behind you. And the amount of work it takes to put those those profiles again on all those players, all the looks it takes, it's relentless. That's what I mean. When I tell you it started last fall, it's actually started last fall to get to where we are today. It's relentless amount of effort of being on planes, driving cars, bad food. Just there's so much that kind of goes into this that it's, that it's crazy. How do you guys evaluate the ability and or need to go over slot, go under slot, balance that idea of taking a player in a position that benefits you later on or going whole hog for a, a player at whether it's 15 or, or later on down the line? It's, it's a tricky walk that everybody's got to deal with now. And here's the, here's what's interesting. When I tell you the depth of the position yeah. players, I'm like, if you think player 8 is equivalent to player 14, why would you spend the, the slot value at player 8 if the same player is at 14? Sure. And that's a, you're sort of saving $400,000, $500,000 between those two numbers. A meaningful number in this draft, yeah. Yeah, that you can buy another piece down the road that may cost a little bit more on the signability of the college player or the high school player. That's what's going to be tricky about this draft. There will be players don't maybe not realize it today, they're going to be on sale. 
and the player that may take the deal may take this to get a little bit more screwy, as we called it, because the player who took the deal or took less money to go in that slot, if he felt like he was going to go 14 anyway, he's got to go to get a chance to go eight and get the same amount of money. Yeah, he, that may occur. So based off maybe they had that player evaluated like that. So this pool value on this thing can get it, it can be used in your advantage, but also you may be able to get a player fall down and have to pay for him a little bit more because they tried to undercut him in front of you as well. So there's almost two ways to attack that that piece. And we're ready for both of those. We've talked about both those scenarios upstairs. Yeah. So. Mike, last one for you. And I, I think, you know, now that there's, you know, a body of work, you've mentioned the players that, that you take in the first round. And I think White Sox fans are familiar with a lot of them given the success that they've had in the minor league system so far. What would you say has changed the most about your perspective toward the draft, having done this job for four years? What what could you go back and tell Mike Shirley day one of the draft, first year you're running it, and go, hey, Mike, maybe pay attention to this? Yeah, and I've learned, I mean, I think there's learned, I feel more comfortable doing this. It's still a real challenge. There's nothing, I, I've, as a player, it's hard. I've coached, it's hard. This is really hard. I mean, I really do think, and I feel like I'm prepared. I live this. I'm in it every day. But I thought it was going to get easier. I'm just going to be honest with you. And I'm not. This has been the toughest one. Yeah. I'm going. I'm going to leave here. I'm going to go back upstairs. Yep. It's four floors up, and I'm back in the madness, and it's not getting any easier. But that's that's. I have so much respect for the game. Mm. How good major league players are. I have so much respect for what Rick and Kenny and Chris Getz and Jeremy do to give them pieces. It's just hard, and it takes a lot of work. If you're not all in, you better do something else. But we feel good about the work. But I told my wife this before I left home, Miss Kimberly, this is not getting any easier. So I do. It's just a real challenge. It's just it's how it is. And but look, man, I'm all in. Let's go, Garrett. Guess our assistant this morning. Hey, you okay, you ready to go? I guess don't ask me. I'm all in. This is, let's go. You know what I mean? So that, that's the things that we're, we're – you know, that, that staff, those guys are tremendous. I'm excited about it. So. Mike, appreciate the time. Yes, Best of luck Sunday. Yeah. That was Connor McKnight with White Sox Director of Amateur Scouting, Mike Shirley. This is White Sox Weekly. Shane Orling sitting in, taking you up to pregame. Coming your way in about 13 minutes. It'll be Connor and DJ on the call of the game. First pitch, one ten against the St. Louis Cardinals on the south side. White Sox Weekly continues. This is the ESPN 1000 Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network. It's White Sox Weekly on ESPN 1000 Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network. The pregame show coming your way in just under eight minutes. I will take you up to the call of the game with Connor McKnight. And Darren Jackson, Sox fans, help support diverse businesses through the BMO Empower Business Contest. Scan the QR code on your screen so they could win a grant and exclusive prizing from BMO. If you nominate a finalist, you'll be entered to win White Sox prizing. For more information, visit WhiteSox.com slash Empower. All right, I want to finish off White Sox Weekly here with... A little bit of an ode to one of the great players so far for this White Sox season and in Major League Baseball. What if I told you that the White Sox have a guy who may be one of the most clutch players in baseball? Would you believe it? 
Every RBI you are about to hear came in the sixth inning or later and either tied the game or took the lead for the White Sox. Listen to this. The pitch, round ball, base hit it to left. Andrus is going to try to score. Here comes the throw by Moore. It's cut off. Zach Remillard. What a debut. He just tied the game at three. Here it comes. Swing and a base hit out of the right. Remillard drives in Andrus. He's done it again. Swing and a base hit to left. Elvis coming around third. The throw by Jankowski is in time. They got him. We'll see if Pedro wants to challenge it, and he's already made the call. He's not even going to ask the video room. It was a bang-bang play. After review, the call on the field is overturned to a violating the blocking rule and the White Sox lead this game. Nope, he hits a ground ball into right. Base hit. Randall scores. Here comes Berger. He is saved. They've got the lead. The pitch. He walked him. Fastball inside and I'll tell you what, it may have been a strike and it's almost always the auto strike but not this time. It's a go-ahead RBI for Remillard to make it 8-7. to seven. There it is. A full minute and a half of Zach Remillard delivering in the clutch. Uh, you have here one of the single most clutch players so far this season. That's not a joke. And he did it again last night on separate RBIs in a rally win for the White Sox. He has been the guy. He's delivered in every big moment you could have asked for him from the debut on. He walks in big moments. I mean, listen to this. 58 plate appearances on the season. That's a very small number if you're not familiar. 49 at-bats. He's played in 18 games. He's worth more wins above replacement than Javi Baez. Think about that. Zach Remillard got called up and got into a game because Tim Anderson got injured and has become an insanely clutch bat. There's just no other way to put it. An OPS of 905. He's hitting 367. He just keeps delivering in clutch moments. You can't make it up. This is why baseball's the greatest. Because something totally random like this can happen and become such a great story. And what an otherwise has been a disappointing season for the White Sox, at least we have this. Thank you, Zach Remillard, for delivering in huge moments after spending so long in the minor leagues to come to this team and be this beacon. It's been wonderful to watch. Thank you to Zach Remillard. White Sox call of the game. White Sox and Cardinals coming up next. Pre-game show starts in four minutes. First pitch, 110.